Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, as well as insights in how to navigate the capital markets. What you'll hear in these interviews may very well change the course of your career, your company, and your life. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Brett Colvin, who's the co-founder and CEO of Good Lawyer. As a former practicing lawyer, he had an inside scoop into how the business model works. Now, from what he saw are were areas of inefficiency and opportunity. And today, Good Lawyers in its fifth year of business, he's raised over $3 million and intentionally kept that low and has 150 practicing lawyers across Canada. So I've been really interested to have this interview because one, I've always been fascinated in law and the model itself, but also how technology is starting to change that business model. And I figured this would be a great interview. So Brett, welcome to the show. Corey, thanks for having me. Yes. The best place for us to start is with an introduction from yourself. So what I'm going to do is hand it over to you and you can give us some background and bring us on in. Well, I thought your intro hit it on the head pretty well. I started Good Lawyer back in 2019 with a few co-founders who you know really complimented what I was bringing to the table, hopefully with some of that subject matter expertise, having practiced in the big law context for almost five years prior to Good Lawyer. I think what you identified in the intro with respect to the inefficiencies and what I perceived to be some of the broken pieces when it came to, in my case, the traditional large national law firm presented an opportunity. And I'd say everybody finds lawyers expensive and often disconnected or, you know, in the case of small businesses, intimidating. But one of the realizations I had while working in the firm was there was a huge deficit when it came to lawyers and just sort of general lawyer happiness and well-being. When I could see on the one hand, the demand side, the business clients, less than thrilled with the service and the costs that they were experiencing with the firm, coupled with the fact that the talent, really the core of the law firm was also on average, pretty miserable and discontent with where their careers had taken them. I saw an opportunity to build something new, build something better, embed technology to drive out a lot of those inefficiencies and really create a platform that could connect the dots in a faster and more cost-effective way to ultimately bring that really important legal expertise into these high growth and very cool businesses but in a new way that worked better for everybody. And that's really where Good Lawyer started. All right. What were you practicing before? What kind of law? Yeah, in my private practice days, I was a corporate lawyer, mostly focused on banking, commercial real estate. And then towards the end of my tenure, the last, call it year, year and a half of my time at the big firm, I started to go deeper and deeper into the regulatory world, specifically in the sort of financial services space. So got very familiar with things like the Bank Act and actually spent almost a year in Vancouver working in-house for a large 
financial institution and helping them deal with kind of some historic sort of regulatory changes that they were taking advantage of. And so that was sort of where I spent my time in my big firm days. I joke around that I have an inordinate number of friends who are lawyers, as I mentioned to you in our pre-call there. And it's very true that so many lawyers are unhappy with the profession. And I thought it was interesting. I didn't know where we'd go here, but in building Good Lawyer, looking at the unhappiness or the discontent of lawyers as a profession, and then using your platform to potentially address that. So I didn't expect us to go here, but can you talk to me a bit about that and how you've been able to tackle that? And and are you being successful? Fundamentally, traditional law firms, you know, over the past 50 plus years have really been predicated on billable hours and selling as many of those billable hours as you possibly can. What that translates to within the firm context is targets. And every lawyer in every big firm has a billable hour target that they are expected to hit over the course of the year. What that does sort of psychologically, and I come from a a house full of psychologists, is it really disorients you. And it created, at least for me, a world or experience where everything I did, I could break down into six minute intervals. Even on the weekend, I would be thinking in, you know, in the firm, we call them point ones. And I think when, you know, and certainly in the big firms, like you have a lot of smart and incredibly hardworking, diligent people. And they've been given this target to hit and everything you do every day, sort of revolves around just trying to stack as many of those billable hours as you can. So that you can be, you know, successful as defined by the firm and and hit your target. And I think what that billable hour model really misses out on and having ran contracting businesses, you know, in my undergrad and and learning how to estimate and really deliver services for a price based on the value is completely missing in that billable hour model. You know, whether it was me waiting for the photocopier or me talking to the CEO of a business with respect to something incredibly important and strategic, all of those six-minute intervals, all those billable hours were treated the exact same. And I think that is another piece, is just tracking towards this you know, hard-to-reach target when it comes to just like sheer billable hours that you're supposed to produce. But also the fact that there's not any, at least for me, sort of separation between the value I was delivering to a client in a specific circumstance versus just being at my desk and have the timer running. So I think that obsession with billable hours is one of the primary drivers. And there are a number of other drivers, but one of the primary drivers that leads to that lawyer dissatisfaction in what they're doing. And you know, frankly, contrasting that to what they thought they would be doing when they entered law school on day one. It's kind of the ultimate of being on a treadmill. Just needing to make those hours or you ain't making partner. Well, it's funny because I'm sure you are familiar with this world given your finance background, but Charlie Munger passed away sadly not so long ago. You know, I've just been digesting a ton of Charlie content over the last couple of weeks. And there was one quote that he had in one of the podcasts I listened to where he was talking because he was a lawyer. He was a corporate lawyer until he was in his late thirties before he met Warren and you know, the rest is history. And he mentioned that his son-in-law, I believe, is a corporate lawyer in the US at you know one of the big firms. And he just doesn't get it because I think his line was, it's like a pie-eating contest where the award is 
more pie. (laughs) And I thought that just kind of hit the nail on the head. And, you know, again, I think that is psychologically something that, you know, a bunch of smart, competitive type A's can get sucked into without even realizing it. Kind of like how I was in my early days. And, you know, I just don't think that is the sort of, you know, forgetting even just like the work-life balance and working weekends all the time and late nights and all that stuff. Just the purpose that somebody feels in their day-to-day. If your purpose is to just stack point ones on top of each other, for me, that was missing something beyond that. And it's not to say that all the lawyers that's you know in the big firms that's their their sole purpose, but it is the number one I'd say driver of behavior on a day to day basis, and something that is always sitting there in the background that you're always sort of forced to think about because that's how you're being measured. I think that being measured in that sort of pie eating contest sort of way for an entire career can be, you know, in a lot of instances, depressing and just lacking something. And I think that's why we see such high numbers of substance abuse and also folks just deciding that they've had enough and and leaving the profession. I would not be surprised if law had one of the largest turnovers of all the professions because the numbers are staggering. So I want to, to learn more about the business model, where you are. In fact, let's start there. Give me, if you can, a high level of how you're approaching the legal market now with your services. And then I want to get into some of the early days because you're effectively pioneering something. You're bringing a new model to market and I'm sure not everything has worked. But if we start off with where you're at now, what's working now and how you're growing, tell us about yeah, a good lawyer from that perspective. Yeah. So Good Lawyer is a platform that connects two groups. Corporate lawyers, not just corporate, corporate IP, business-oriented lawyers from across Canada who you know used to work in the big firm in, I'd say, at least half instances have spent some time working in-house, you know, in that in-house corporate environment and have now decided to pursue a bit more of an entrepreneurial venture and set up, you know, their own shingle and practice as a sole practitioner. That is the core sort of supply side when it comes to the lawyers that Good Lawyer was designed for and who we work with primarily. And connecting that legal talent with businesses of all shapes and sizes, there's sort of priorities from a growth perspective that I can get into. But connecting those with businesses who have complex legal needs, whether they're a fintech that's you know raised venture capital whether they're a large services company that needs to augment an existing in-house legal team. Really for us, it's about connecting those dots. In the early days, our differentiation was really focused on upfront fixed fee quotes, already priced services to take a lot of that risk and uncertainty out of the buying process when it came to buying legal services. I think legal services are one of the very few service industries that you don't know how much it's going to cost until the end. And to me, I thought that was a huge problem that in not all, but most situations could be resolved. And it's really cool to see some of the AI stuff that we have cooking in the background right now when it comes to automating a lot of these sort of business-oriented tasks like quoting that we're going to be able to put in the hands of these awesome solo lawyers. And then for the businesses, no business is particularly excited in most instances to deal with with the legal hurdles that you know are in front of them as they build and grow their business, maybe expand internationally. But the fact is, is that it is part of building a business. You have to deal with the legal aspects of that business from day one. And the bigger you get, the greater those risks become. And so 
being able to connect the dots between these fantastic lawyers and these high growth businesses is really where Good Lawyer is focused today. And we've found a wedge in to these high growth businesses with fractional counsel, very much like a fractional CFO embedding a fractional GC or a fractional in-house lawyer to augment an existing team is the big growth lever that we've been pulling for the last 12 to 15 months. And doing that on top of continuing to serve the early stage startups that we sort of grew up with, but really the focus being on embedding these highly experienced industry-specific lawyers into these businesses that need their support and are tired of paying 1100 bucks an hour. Or 500 bucks an hour or 300 bucks an hour. Oh, man. A lot of the lawyers that we're augmenting or, or, or replacing in some instances are a lot more than 500 bucks an hour, let me tell you. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to downplay the value. No, but I think one thing that I do want to hit on just because it's top of mind now that we're talking about the rates, I think something that a lot of people that they miss or they don't fully comprehend is just how big a chunk the firm takes out of a one unit being like an hour of that lawyer's time. You know, for associates like I was back in the day as a fourth year associate, I was billing out at over 500 bucks an hour and I was putting call it 75 in my pocket. And even at the senior equity level, you've got lawyers in town that bill out at 900 bucks an hour, putting less than 300 in their pocket. And in both instances, there is so much margin that is just getting eaten up by my old expense card, my fancy office that I, you know, would close the door on and work all day in solitude the support staff, which is super, super important and probably where the best money is spent and my expense card. And then ultimately the partner draws for the guys that are bringing in the big mandates and, you know, walking away at the end of the year with a few million bucks. It's amazing. I didn't know it was that much. I thought it was, you know, in the realm of 60, 40 or 50, 50, but that's significant. And so in going through this, I'm curious where you've made mistakes Oh, so many mistakes, my friend. Of course. I mean, that's the only way we we make progress is is trial and error. And so what forms of this model have you tried and and where did you fail? And then what did you learn from that to continue growing? There have been so many mistakes and failures over the last almost five years now. To recount on this pod, we would need much, much longer. But I would say that the biggest learning that I've had, and I would say by extension, uh, my whole team has had over the last five years is really understanding who our customer is and who we are best suited to serve to support. The example that I will give there is when you know we launched Good Lawyer for the first time way back in 2019, 2020, we did everything. <laughs> we, you're a business. So we got you an individual who needed a will or a, we just bought a new house you were getting divorced, you were immigrating into Canada for a period. If you need to talk to a criminal lawyer, we had it all. And what we realized, thankfully, quite quickly was that was way too big of an ocean to boil all at once. And frankly, as we got smarter, we narrowed it down to business, which happened to also be where you know mine and, and my co-founder's greatest passion was in the realm of law. I've been an entrepreneur since I was a little kid. And that is a group that I, I love working with and I love serving in a way that you know I can appreciate that 
really large billable hours and the uncertainty is super painful, say in like the divorce family context. But that's not where my experience, history, interests lie. And so that was part of the reason for axing a bunch of the practice areas that we opened with on day one and the recurring nature of our clientele and where we could find this unique differentiation in a way that we could also deliver the service in that world. You know, we don't do a lot of litigation because it's more prolonged. Often there's contingencies that we're not really set up to do. Whereas on the solicitor side, which is our bread and butter sort of historically, after we got a little smarter, those types of services, a shareholder agreement, you know, your first pre-seed or seed round, you know, that sales contract that you need because you just got your first big client, your lease review, all of those things were really amenable to being fixed fee quoted and priced. So that being our key differentiator in those early days was really important and was a lot easier to control and execute on on the commercial side as opposed to say the litigation side which you know all the big firms they might have different balances but they all would do both of those things because they're just selling the hours at the end of the day they don't care how they're selling the hours for us to box up these fixed fee prices our focus was on the solicitor the commercial work narrowing it to business was a smart move but then you know again and this is my number one piece of advice to early stage founders that are building something new is we had to go even more narrow business was still too broad in those early days and so we got even more narrow and it's not to say that we wouldn't help a mom and pop shop that you know they're moving into a new space they need this lease reviewed yeah we can we can absolutely serve you there but that's not who we're focused on when i'm thinking about the website our messaging what events we're going to what we're putting out on LinkedIn, all of those things when it comes to the strategy and the channels we're looking to find new customers in, we narrowed that down to startups. And that was really natural because that was the world that we were in all the time because we were part of it. And narrowing it to startups, that was back in 2021. Startups were absolutely ripping. And so that was a really awesome market to be in at that time. And again, it was just so natural because they were going through the same hurdles that we were going through. It was just super relatable. And we also had a high degree of access with those potential clients. Fast forward. And now I'd say for the first time in, call it four years, we have started to expand the pie instead of narrowing it. Because we started extremely wide and you know, over the course of a couple of years, got smarter, got super narrow. Canadian venture back startups, that's who we were going after. And now it's starting to open up a little bit wider, still keeping it pretty tight, but a little bit wider because some of those startups from three years ago have been tremendously successful and we've now been able to grow with them. And that's really where this fractional general counsel offering came from in the first instance was clients that had been working with us for a couple of years outgrew exclusively the fixed fee services because they had such a high volume of contracts or you know sales going on that getting a fixed fee quote every time became cumbersome. And so that's really where Fractional emerged from. And that would be another sort of piece of the learning is go where your best customers are pulling you. And that's what I like to think that we're doing today. How has it been attracting the talent, the lawyers in who perhaps wanted to leave the big firm, but could still command a large hourly and saying, hey, step away from the hourly. Let's do some fixed fee. 
have you had pushback on your model to attract that kind of talent in? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Like in the early days, I was the first good lawyer and I just made my friends and contacts use this funny website if they wanted me to do their contract or their house deal. And, you know, in those early days, getting some traction with our supply side, the, the legal talent we're working with was challenging. But the value prop was always quite strong, which was, you don't have to pay us anything. We're just going to go and try to find you work. And if we do, you've got to run it through us. And, you know, we can be that platform sort of broker in the middle. I would say, I can't pinpoint exactly when, but certainly two, maybe even close to three years ago, that sort of flipped where it was becoming easier and easier to recruit more and more incredible lawyers and legal talent. And where we're at today, we've moved up market very considerably. And the opportunity that we're offering to lawyers today that choose to to work with good lawyer is wildly different than the opportunity we offered, call it two, three years ago. Two, three years ago, you know, we still I think had our sort of top lawyer doing six figures through the business, maybe just like just tipping into making them close to a hundred. And one guy who was kind of our busiest lawyer that we'd ever had. Whereas today, becoming a lawyer and deciding to practice and run your whole book through Good Lawyer is absolutely a real option where you know you can make considerable amounts of money, work with super cool businesses doing very interesting things and growing like crazy, but you can do it on your own terms with the flexibility that you're looking for. You know, one of our sort of top fractional GCs was at Shopify for the better part of a decade. One of their associate general counsels, you know, which is very high up the chain in terms of Shopify's in-house legal team. And earlier this year, he moved to Costa Rica. And he's, you know, working with three or four fractional clients, all of these businesses that are at a far greater scale than we would have imagined a couple of years ago. And it is this sort of perfect balance best of both worlds where he gets to be an entrepreneur he gets to work with super high caliber clients businesses that you know interest him that he's aligned with beyond just selling time to but he also can make an incredible living from anywhere in the world on like the same note but in a slightly different context and frankly where i see sort of the biggest opportunity long term when it comes to our lawyer network, the supply side of our marketplace business is all of the incredible women that leave big firms in unbelievable numbers, significantly higher numbers than the men. And, you know, I was talking with a woman who's new to our network just two days ago, I think, who was in our office. And, you know, she probably wouldn't be practicing today, but for good lawyer in that situation, you know, they've got a couple of young kids. They're pretty well off financially. She doesn't have to work to put food on the table, but she's an incredible lawyer. And the full-time in-house gig or going back to private practice, neither of those were attractive. But this opportunity to work with a couple clients in this fractional capacity and bring her 15 years of experience working in big law, working in-house and working at the Securities Commission, like that is just an unbelievable legal mind that you know, before we found her was sitting on the sidelines. So that ability to unlock latent supply in the same way that we're unlocking latent demand on the business side 
that's really where the magic happens with what we're trying to build. Interesting. Okay. Talk to me about the future of law and things like AI. How do you see that impacting the business and how are you putting it to work? It's very early days in our AI journey. You know, it's it's been implemented in a couple of discrete places, you know, in the Good Lawyer platform with some pretty exciting stuff cooking in the background that I wish I could talk more about, but is not something that we're ready to, to share today. Yeah, yeah, maybe on the next pod. <laughs> but more generally for the industry, I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be like going from writing up a contract with a pen and a scroll. Yeah, you got your feather kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Like picturing that, jumping from that to today where no lawyer ever drafts a contract from a blank page. You've got your precedents, you've got your automation tools, you know, you have your library of guides. Precedents being probably the most sort of pertinent a lawyer's day-to-day. That's one of the reasons that we partnered with Thomson Reuters early in our journey to make sure that we could get our independent solo lawyers, the same tools and firepower that the big firms have and use like I did in my time at the firm. But I think that this advent of AI and where AI is going in the world of law is as big of a sort of jump as going from pen and paper to internet templates, all of these things that make the lawyer dramatically more efficient. So I don't think that AI is ever going to eliminate lawyers. And frankly, like it or not, they tend to be the ones that make the rules, whether it's in legislation or in the courts. It's going to be very, very hard to, to get lawyers out of everything. But there's, It's going to be hard to get rid of you guys. It's going to be really hard. But ultimately, I think that it's going to unlock the lawyer's ability within an organization in particular, like within a business, to become a significantly more strategic player and use these tools to you know effectively give them superpowers that's kind of been my dream from day one is bake the best tools into the good lawyer platform whether that's us building it from scratch or partnering you know with another legal tech company to give the lawyer those superpowers and really maximize what they're able to do in a day's work i think there will be a ton of places where ai and in particular, the you know LLMs that we've seen lately, where they will give access to basic legal services, whether it's a small business owner or whether it's an individual going through the court system that can't afford a lawyer, you know anything that you would go to say Law Depot for today, I imagine all of that moving and being heavily affected by AI in terms of like what you're able to do as just your average layman and trying to get the court document drafted or the contract created, it's going to be super powerful there. But in the larger sort of business context, the world that we're playing in today, I see it just really giving the lawyers superpowers and a degree of leverage that they've never had before. Yeah, I think that one of the areas I've always been challenged by having legal relationships is when, you know, to use your terminology, a point one is stacked against the client. No time for niceties and no time for actually getting into some strategic back and forth, like to really build on a relationship where the client feels at liberty to continue to share and, and provide more context and nuance that can go well beyond just a single contract and tap into the minds that are putting those together. So this is 
I think it is interesting that we could be getting into an age where we'll be able to tap into the legal minds and just not the legal service itself. You know, it's really interesting. And it's probably the, the first thing that I remember learning at the firm when I was a summer student. I think it was on like orientation day. The one thing that stands out to me so clearly was the partner doing that session. Never miss a point one. That was the one thing that I could take away from my summer at the firm before I came back to article was never miss a point one. But I think that functionally, that business model predicated on time, on point ones, on billable hours is actually what has created some of the greatest barriers, greatest barriers when it comes to tech adoption and also the biggest pain points when it comes to being, I'd say, a more traditional legal tech company, which I would say Good Lawyer is a little bit of a variant because we're, you know, we're more of this platform as opposed to a tool that a lot of the legal tech companies are building or have built in the past. But when you're selling efficiency, which is ultimately what technology is driving, you know, nine times out of 10, it's hard to sell efficiency to an organization that makes money on inefficiency. Yes. <laughs> and so I think the true revolution is down the road and we will get there, but it will be forced upon the sort of leaders in the profession that I'm picturing being, you know, the biggest law firms, not just in Canada, but around the world, being forced by their clients to pivot away from this core billable hour model, move to a value or relationship-based pricing model. And that is when the incentives will align. And the idea of driving those efficiencies with AI or any other sort of technology tool will truly be adopted by the profession. You can think of it much in the same way that Google has been put in this uncomfortable position where, you know, do they innovate themselves and release their best products because it's better tech than what they had in the past? Or do they just sit and continue milking traditional search for as long as they humanly can? Very similar, I think, parallel in the legal world and one that I am 100% confident will change over time. It really is the big question is how long is that going to take? Let's talk about about sales and you know the selling of value and I'm curious about how you've gone about selling good lawyer into bringing in new firms and and also want to tie that into some of the PR and marketing. I mean, I heard about good lawyer surely before you and I had ever met and in a number of ways. Can you talk to me about how you've leveraged PR and marketing and how the sales process has been for you? Yeah, so I mean, I'll deal with those separately starting with the marketing PR piece everything we've done in that world from day 1 has been in-house you know we've never paid for a PR agency to get us in anything we've never you know paid a digital marketing agency for that matter to run paid ads and I don't think we've run a paid ad through Facebook or Google or anything like that in close to 2 years now so really have focused on organic content me personally and a couple of the other folks on my team who are pretty, I would say, not focused on, but producing a lot of their own content as well. Grant, our head of growth, is one that stands out to me as well. But building in public, telling the good lawyer story, sharing the ups, but also the downs and and being in the faces of the community and you know, ideally potential future customers as often as we can be. And then I'd say the one 
marquee event that I can tell you my director of finance was very displeased with at the outset. We did ultimately get the sponsorship. I told them we would was we threw two years ago, the Calgary at collision yacht party. And then last year we, we brought the whole province and threw the Alberta at collision yacht party. Both times we had over 500 people on the biggest boat in Lake Ontario connected to the largest technology conference in North America. And I had a suspicion that people would be excited about Yacht Party. And we had some amazing partners and sponsors that, you know, helped spread the word and also pay for the boat. But I completely underestimated how powerful that would be. And so that I would say if there was a single sort of marketing hack that we kind of stumbled into or or rolled the dice with it, it would be that Yacht Party. And I think more consistently just being at events, continuing to tell our story primarily on LinkedIn, I'd say more than anywhere else, and delivering a great sort of solution. Word of mouth is our, our number one growth driver, unquestionably. And that comes back to not just the sales process, which is more important for us than ever now that we're selling into you know these fast-growing scale-ups, mid-market companies, and now also these enterprise clients. But there's, I'd say, a, a consistency to what you're selling and then what you're ultimately delivering that... If you provide a client, in our case, with a 10x better service, they're going to tell their friends. They're going to trust that person that was making the recommendation more than they would ever trust somebody from Good Lawyer calling them, cold calling them. So really delivering on the service at the end of the day is your best marketing angle, I think, every time. When I am thinking about the sales function more discreetly, which is a new function for Good Lawyer. We've only really had a, a true sales function for the past, I'd say, 12 months. But it's been highly effective. And I think it's been effective because you know we've got a pretty illustrious group of folks that are on that team that have worked in the world of law. Our COO being a great example, who practiced with me at the, at the big firm. He was there for actually like seven years as a securities lawyer and just oozes trust. But ultimately, he's selling a value proposition that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, I think for us, that has also been one of the greatest challenges. And and also, I think, where you start to see a, a moat for Good Lawyer developing is this credibility march that we've been on since I was the only Good Lawyer in the network. It's been this credibility march for five years and continuing again to deliver on the service and get those word of mouth referrals and those key client testimonials that you can then share on the next sales pitch or at the next sort of marketing initiative has been really key and and something that we're definitely not at the top of the ladder yet. We have more steps to go and we will continue marching and showing the business world that Good Lawyer is a, a legal platform that you can trust and can deliver exceptional value compared to the incumbents. So what I take from that is that yacht parties are the way to go. Oh, man. I'm definitely going to be recycling the yacht party, not just in Toronto. But when we go to the US, I think it's been an absolute weapon. And it is not easy to throw a 500-person yacht party. So a huge shout-out to my team, in particular, Katie and Zach, who you know really drove the bus on making that event such a success. Amazing. What about any books, podcasts, or other media that inspire you? I'm consuming content a crazy, crazy amount. 
And that is just fueled by my true love for business. Like this is what gets me going every day. I, I love thinking and, and learning about business and what worked. I just watched a two hour Bezos sit down with Lex Friedman last night and it was just like that guy's an absolute savant. Oh yeah, no kidding. Yeah. But I would say that one podcast that has come on my radar in the last year that I, I absolutely adore. I never miss an episode pretty well is called Founders. David Senra is the guy that does it. And he basically reads biographies of not just business, but mostly business, the best leaders of our time and many folks who have long passed and basically synthesizes that autobiography into, you know, a 45 to hour long podcast. And you can start to see parallels in approaches and personalities and all of these things between these incredible founders, CEOs, leaders over, call it the last 100 years. And I've found it incredibly entertaining, but also motivating and extremely informative for you know things that I should or should not be doing. That's interesting to say that you know, you're seeing these parallels in personalities of these leaders. And I don't think that's by coincidence by any means. It's Interesting. Final question is, any final thoughts for the audience, perhaps from your journey of building this company? Yeah, actually, it kind of ties into one of those founders podcasts I listened to recently. And one of the parallels that I've seen between some of these successful businesses over the years, and that is the power of incentives. Getting the incentives right is so incredibly powerful. And an example of that that I can recall from the podcast I was listening to earlier this week was a guy named Les Schwab who built the Schwab Tire Empire coming basically out of poverty to build this multi-billion dollar business. I am pretty sure he's gone now. I think he he was older than Munger. But the way that he incentivized all of these individual tire shop owners to be fully aligned with the broader Schwab mission and really decentralize a ton of that decision making to these shop owners is a powerful concept that you know I'm layering into what comes next for Good Lawyer as we start to think about international expansion and how do we take this to a totally new level. And I, and I think that's by baking in the right incentives. And then the second piece to that is the right culture. And I think the best example of this, of someone who took culture so seriously because it's one of those words that gets thrown around way too much. But it was highlighted again on that Lex show I watched last night is is Jeff Bezos. And the power of calling themselves the most customer-centric company in the world and then driving that through all of the layers, whether it's the values of the company, the policies, but that being sort of the overarching ethos of the whole organization was an incredibly powerful mechanism to drive decision-making at all layers of the company. When you have to go left or right, if you know that you're the most customer-centric company in the world, you know you're going left. Whatever is the more customer-centric option of the two that are in front of you, you're going down that path. And I found it really interesting that you know, the chat with Lex was primarily about Bezos's new company being Blue Origin. So not actually that new. It's been around since 2006. Anyways, 
he has a different ethos that he wants to inject in that company. And that is to be the most decisive company in the world, which I found super interesting and, you know, goes to his belief that speed and velocity and and fast decision making is so important because most decisions are two way doors, you can walk through them. And if it doesn't work, you can come back. And where most companies get sort of slipped up or ultimately fail, it's because they weren't able to make decisions quickly enough, learn and iterate on those decisions. You know, the analysis paralysis is real. and, And I just found that super interesting, how Bezos has evolved between Amazon and now Blue Origin and and why he is now to determine that for this new company, which is, you know, much less of a consumer facing company than Amazon. Decisiveness being this like key core cultural characteristic that he wants to drive throughout his business. Fascinating. Well, Brett, I'm really glad we connected. Nice to see you at that party and nice to make the connection here and do the interview. I've really enjoyed it. Well, maybe we'll see you on the yacht next year, my friend. Hey, (laughs) I'll look for my invite. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.